Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Welcome to CBC. My name is Charlie. If we haven't met, I'm that awkward in real life too. I'd love to meet you after the service if you haven't been with us before at CBC. We do this thing at the beginning because we realize and recognize that the culture we live in sometimes doesn't live out the ways of Jesus. There's a quote we use that I love, the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. We live in a culture that is incredibly critical and we come into this space and we know that God has something for us. We come into the space knowing the Holy Spirit is near and real and willing to converse with us. And so we lay aside the, the largely um, contempt of the outside world and the critiqueness of the outside world. And we come in here and we say, God, what do you have for me today? And so we begin by praying. We begin by asking the Lord to speak to us by expecting him to. And I'm going to lead you through a prayer and say, if you feel comfortable, you pray for just a few seconds and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your spirit. And lastly, you pray for me. Uh, that you don't see a man in a message, but the words of God, the beauty of Jesus and his goodness through the gospel uh, in our time today. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here. Holy Spirit, meet us. As we look into a bit of the story of John the Baptist today, I pray we see the beauty of Jesus, his grace and his compassion towards his friend, his cousin. If you're willing... Just spend a couple seconds and say a quick prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit this morning. And I ask that you pray for me that, that God might do a work that through his words, we see a better, more beautiful picture of him today. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. If you got a Bible, we're in Matthew 11 today. You can turn there. It is Amazing to me how little things in life can cause me to doubt big things that I know. And I know that because I text with my wife often. And let me tell you what makes me doubt everything I know about our relationship. When I text her and then I see back dot, 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 and then it goes away, right? I've been married for eight years. She's been my wife every day since then. And I can ask her a question like, hey, what do you want for dinner tonight? Dot, dot, dot. And then it goes away and five minutes pass. And in my head, I've moved from what's for dinner to I think we're getting divorced, Right? It is amazing how the little things introduce doubt towards the big things we know to be true. There's so many great theologians and scholars that have gone before us. And what we do sometimes is in those places when we doubt the big things, like let's say God, we feel like we're alone. Let's play a little game. I'm going to throw some quotes on the screen. We're going to play a little who said that game. This is the first. Darkness is such that I really do not see Neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There's no God in me. When the pain of longing is just so great, I just long and long for God. The torture and pain I can't explain. Deep doubt. You said that? 
Mother Teresa, right? Another one. For more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy of God. That's Martin Luther. Let's do another one. Surely while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. You know who wrote that? John Calvin. These guys are fundamental to our faith. It gets this place, this quote that I like from Socrates. He says, the only true wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing. Today's going to be an encouraging day at CBC. I can feel it. I can feel it. This, this idea that with faith comes doubt. Os Guinness, the writer and speaker, said anyone who believes in anything will automatically know something about doubt. And Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers in the last 200 years, said, I think when a man says, I never doubt, it's quite time for us to doubt him. It's this, it's this idea that intrinsic to our faith comes doubt. And I think if we are honest, we've all been there. It's a Barna study a couple years ago, and it said, of all the people that claim to follow Jesus, upwards of 67% say they have serious doubts or have had serious doubts at some point. It says millennials are twice as likely to doubt. Men are more likely to doubt than women. It says that people that go to college have more doubts than people that don't go to college because they're exposed to different ideas that they never heard before. It's this centrality of doubt to our faith. Our story today is about John the Baptist. It's in the middle of this text we've been going through about Jesus' followers suffering for Jesus. It's not the celebrity of following Jesus. It's the hardship of following Jesus. And in the middle of our text, in the middle of when Jesus is saying, this is going to be difficult, we get the story of John the Baptist who's sitting in prison. He's suffering for Christ and he has doubts about Jesus. Because this is what happens. When we have to sit there and wait and suffer, it makes the, the soil of our faith fertile for doubting. So what I want to do today as we ask some questions about the nature and role of doubt, what I want to do is simply focus on what Jesus does. How he responds to his friend, how he responds to his family, that asks the question, are you really the guy? Because I'm not so sure anymore. And that's where we get to in verse 2 of chapter 11. It says this, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, <laughs> what he'd done, he sent his disciples to ask a question. Um, he said, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? So to get the weight of that question, we have to understand the history of John. John sends people to Jesus because he can't get there because he's locked in prison. It'd probably been about 12 or up to 18 months that he'd been sitting in a cell and he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, you need to ask him if he's the guy. And you have to understand that's a big deal because how John came into the world. If you remember the story of his two parents, it starts in Luke chapter one and, and, and the Bible tells us this. It says, he will go on before the Lord, this is John, in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. His role in life was to, before he was born, given by God to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You might know the story. He, his dad, his mom, Zechariah, was really, really old. He's in the temple. He's met by an angel. The angel says, I know you've been trying to have kids. You haven't had any yet. It's because you're going to have one, and he's going to go before the Son of God. And Zechariah says, in this massive experience of faith, I do not believe you, angel, in the temple. And the angel says, you're not going to speak for a little while. 
because you doubted. So then you fast forward, and John's born. And do, do you know when Zechariah got the ability to speak back? It wasn't when John was born. It was eight days later when they said, what are we going to name him? And his friends and family said, we're going to name him Zechariah, just like you. And his mom said, no, we're going to name him John. And the friends and family said, are you crazy? There's nobody in our family with that name. And Zechariah took a pen and he took a tablet or whatever they wrote with. And he said, his name will be John. And then he started speaking. Because names reflect the reality of who you are, what you're called into. So it's not just that his birth was prophesied about. It's not just that he had an identity founded in God's role for him. Every time they called his name John, he was reminded of his role. Every time. Because it was unlike anyone else in his family. It says that when Mary first met Elizabeth, that John in Elizabeth's belly jumped and leapt with joy in her story. They have a deep connection of John knowing exactly who he was and exactly what he was supposed to do. And in this moment, he says to Jesus, am I sure? Am I right? Are you the one? 30 some odd years later. It's a big moment. It's because the idea that John had of Jesus was a little different than the Jesus that showed up. Let me read to you from Matthew 3. This is when John first encounters adult Jesus in ministry. And he says to Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into fire. And then he goes on to say, I baptize you with water, but the one after me is more powerful. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with the unquenchable fire. I told you, encouraging day at CBC today, you know? So John expected, John expected his Messiah to come and make right wrongs. Good for John. I'm there. But he's sitting in a prison. There were some other hints along the way that John quite didn't put the pieces together of who Jesus was. In Matthew 9, you get this text where his disciples go to Jesus and they say, why don't you fast like we all fast? They fasted two to three days a week and Jesus didn't fast. And so John is trying to put the pieces together saying, you're supposed to be the son of God, but you don't live into the rituals and ways and rules of the people that follow God. And he's sitting in prison for 12 to 18 months. And the prison actually that he's sitting in, um, is the fortress of Macarius. It's about 10 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. And it was the second most fortified place in Judea outside of Jerusalem itself. Do you know why he was there? You can read it in Matthew 14. He was there because the ruler at the time of that region was Herod of Antipas. And he decided that he didn't like his wife anymore. And so he went to Rome and he wooed his brother's wife. And then he went back after he had an affair and he got rid of his wife and convinced his brother's wife from Rome to come and live with him. Not a good brother. John the Baptist spoke out against it. He said, this is not right. This is not good. This is not what the Lord has for you. And so Herod took him and threw him in jail. Let's add one more thing to this. You realize that when, when Jesus announced his public ministry, you can read it in Luke 4, he, he went to the, to, to the, to the synagogue and every time when you met in the synagogue, they had, a, they had a reading of the prophets and a reading of the law. And so Jesus got up to read the prophet that morning and he read from Isaiah and he says that here I've come to give sight to the blind and free the captives. And then they were amazed when he read that passage and he sat down and he said, today this has been fulfilled. 
Jesus started his ministry scene by saying, I'm going to set free those people who are wrongfully jailed. John sitting in prison, still jailed, wondering, is this the guy? Because what he's doing doesn't line up with my expectations of what he should be doing. John goes to Jesus and says, did we get it wrong this whole time? Should we be looking for another guy? And it fundamentally brings us to the question that I think oftentimes goes before all of or some of our doubts, our expectations of God versus the reality of God. Do we let God define our expectations of him or do we let our expectations define God himself? That's what John is wrestling with in this moment. There's an author who wrote a book called Utopia for Realists, how we can build the ideal world. He said, when reality clashes with our deepest convictions, we'd rather recalibrate reality than amend our worldview. I, in college, took a class on preaching, and I took a couple classes on pastoring. And I remember one of the first days of the class, this is kind of right at the rise of the megachurch movement, you know, not as many as there are today, but people were excited about it. And the prof gets up there and he says, how many of you people want to be full-time pastors? And the whole class raised their hand because we're sitting in that class. And then he said, how many of you guys think you're going to be pastors of big churches? And the whole class raised their hand because we're arrogant 18-year-olds, you know? And the prof got up there and said, hey, about 87% of you will be pastors of churches under 200. If you don't like that, you need to leave this room. What is this moment? But I bet out of that room, 87% left and said, that's the other guy, not me, you know? It's hard to readjust our reality around our expectations. There's a podcast I like called The Startup Podcast. And a few years ago, it's about business entrepreneurs. A few years ago, they chronicled the life of a church planter in Philadelphia. And it's eight or nine episodes long, and you can listen to him struggle with, man, I feel like God has called me to this, but it is not easy. I feel like God has called me to do this work, but we don't have a lot of people. I feel like God has called me to do this, but he's not showing up how he thought he'd show up. Did he even call me in the first place? It's interesting what happens when our expectations of God don't mean the reality of our life and what that causes us to doubt. So John's sitting in prison, and he doubts the reality of Jesus. He says, should we have looked for someone else? And I love Jesus' response. Because what we're going to see in his response to John doubting is that doubting is not a problem to be solved, but a movement of God to be experienced. What we see when John comes to Jesus with these doubts that have to be highly personal, this is his family that's saying, are you the wrong person this whole time? We see the beauty and love and grace of Jesus to his friend and his family member. And so the text continues, and it talks through how Jesus responds. And in Jesus' response, he answered, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is anyone who takes offense, who takes no offense at me. A brief side note. I love in this text how John sent his disciples to talk to Jesus. Here's one of the big problems I think we wrestle with when we wrestle with doubts, is that the real problem with doubting isn't doubting, it's silence. That same Barna study that talked about doubting in the world of Jesus' followers said that 49% of people that doubt do it silently and never tell anybody about it, and then they just walk away. 30% of those people stop reading their Bible. More than that, stop talking to their friends and family about it. What we see is this picture that when we doubt, we just are quiet about it. We don't confront, we run. And I think that's a lot to do with the cultures we've built. What I love about what John has done 
is John absolutely says, I'm going to doubt, but I'm going to go to the source of my doubt. And Jesus says, tell John this. The blind see, the lame walking, keep reading the list. I love what Jesus does here. John asks him to prove that he's really the Messiah. And what Jesus is going to do is take it in two sections. And I think it's fundamental to how we prove anything about ourselves. I think one, we're going to show that we can do the thing that we said we could do. And two, we're going to show that like it was written about and talked about. So this week was uh, spring break week. And so my kiddo didn't have a soccer game. That's right, everybody. Soccer update this week. All right. And my kiddo didn't have a soccer game. So we're going to go back to a previous soccer game in order to, to prove that my kid was an actual three-year-old, I had to do two things. She had to show up and be on the soccer field, and two, I had to give a birth certificate. Our first week that we talked about a couple weeks ago when my team lost 15 to two, um, our first week, there was this man-child of a boy who scored about 12 of the goals. That's right. He was like four inches bigger than everybody. He was faster than everybody. I'm on the sidelines yelling, BC, birth certificate, show it to me, you know? I'm competitive. I want to know that this kid's actually who he says he was, but he was on the field and he was a soccer player and they confirmed with me that he was actually a three-year-old. We have these two components, like it's been written about and also I'm doing the thing. I have one girl on my soccer team, it's been two games and she has yet to step foot on the field. The first game she spent in the corner weeping the whole time and the second game she spent running on the other field with her brother, all right? So she is not yet a soccer player, even though she says she is, because she hasn't actually played. What Jesus does when John questions his legitimacy is to say, it's been written about, and I'm also doing it. So when he gives that list of the blind see, and the people are healed, and lepers are cleansed, and, 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 and people raised from the dead, that list goes to Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 35. That list that he gives isn't just stuff that he's done. It's messianic prophecy noted in the Old Testament. And if you were a Jewish man, you would hear that. And you'd say, nobody does this but the Messiah. He leads off by saying, he leads off by saying the blind seed. Do you know why that starts the list? Because nowhere in the Old Testament... And nowhere in the New Testament does anybody but Jesus give sight to blind people. There's a couple times when scales fall from eyes, but nowhere ever does somebody go from completely blind and always has been to all the way having the ability to see. In the Old Testament, three people are risen from the dead. And it's because in the scriptures, the blind seeing is always a messianic act. It's a divine act given by God. In this text, the verb is in the present tense, which basically means it's a continual process that he will enlighten his people to see more and more of the goodness and beauty of God. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, my role's been written about. I can prove that it actually is a real thing. And then he's gonna go ahead and say, I'm also doing it. So he says to John's disciple, tell them, what you hear and what you see. He doesn't just say it's been written about. He also says, I'm living into it. Look around. That's what I love about this text. In the middle of all of John's doubts, Jesus says, look and see what I've done. Just look and see. And, and, and in the text, it doesn't just mean the miraculous when Jesus says that. It means the miraculous and the day-to-day. -day. It means the rhythms and lifestyles of Jesus that breathe life into those people that follow him. There's a pastor in Dallas, and he wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition a couple weeks ago, and he, he culminated all these stats of how the church is beneficial for life. And by church, he means people that follow Jesus there, not just physical brick and mortar. And, and in it, he said, he quotes the Washington Times, and he says, shockingly, the Washington Times 
uh, did a study and they said that regular church goers were the only segment of the population whose mental health actually improved in a pandemic wreck 2020. He continues to say that people who pray daily and regularly attend church significantly outpace their irreligious neighbors in generosity to the poor, both with their time and money. He says the data shows, and he's got data that shows all of it, that church attendance or followers of Jesus are correlated with less depression, less suicide, less emotional pain medication, greater social support, greater meaning in life, greater life satisfaction, more volunteering, greater civic engagement, and your children are more likely to grow up happy. And look, that's not everybody, but what he's saying simply is that people that follow Jesus typically tend to fare pretty well in life because God has set it up for flourishing. Jesus is saying, not just look at what was written about me, look what I'm doing. Look around at what I've done. Tell me this is not goodness of God walking. And so he draws John aside, his disciples aside, and he says, let me tell you how you deal with doubt. You look at what I've done in the world. Let's start there. But he doesn't stop there. He continues, he says, while they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness and see? A reed shaken by the wind. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Look, those who wear soft clothing are in the places of palaces of kings. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, you are more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way for you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. This is why I love Jesus' response to John. Because he says, look around at what I've done. And then with grace, he looks at John and says, you are still someone I care for. Most leaders, when they're challenged to their core, don't respond with grace. They respond with anger. Jesus didn't say, how could you? We've known each other since birth. Jesus didn't say, in the middle of John's doubt, I can't believe you, you've always been weak. Jesus didn't say, in the middle of John's doubt, I knew you weren't good enough for me. Jesus didn't say, in the middle of John's doubt, this means that you don't have a strong enough faith and you're not really a follower of me. In the middle of John's doubt, what Jesus did was he drew him in and said, look what I'm doing, and then to the crowd around him, just to make sure they couldn't mistake Jesus' words for rebuke on John, said, let me tell you about how good this dude is. He's been prophesied about, and he ends by saying, he is the greatest man born of women. He even says in the middle of that, he's not a reed shaken in the wind. It was an idiom that basically meant that he's a prophet that tells the truth regardless of what the culture around him does. He doesn't waver. Because the least helpful thing you could be is a prophet that bends the knee to the winds of the ebbs and flows of the kings that control you. And so what Jesus does in the middle of John's doubts is he draws him in and he reminds him of who he is and he reminds him that he's still great. It's beautiful. I think so often we've created cultures where when we doubt, it's isolating because you feel like you're not good enough, you're not learned enough, you're not strong enough, you're not fill in the blank enough. I love that Jesus embraces the doubt of John and says, look at him, he's still a great prophet of mine. It did not diminish what he's been doing just because he doubts. In, in Phyllis Tickle's book, A Great Emergent, she writes about the way that our faith family or churches have operated for years. And she talks about this idea that we've created a culture of belief and then behaving and then belonging. And what that means is to enter into the church world, you first start to believe, then what you believe changes how you behave, and then once you've proven that I believe enough and I behave enough, then come on, let's join a small group together and let's be like Jesus enough. 
I went to a college where this is kind of the case. You had to believe something by sending a doctoral statement. You had to live in a certain way. And if you did those three things, they let you stay inside the community. 19 floors of homeschooled guys at Moody. It was awesome for me, you know? But what she argues in this work is that that's not the way of Jesus. That Jesus never says, like, you have to believe before you follow me. He called his disciples, and most of them had no idea who he was. They knew he was a cousin or a brother. They knew he was a teacher or a rabbi, but they had no idea that he was the son of God. That came years later. Jesus consistently calls people to learn about who he is through following. It's the idea that you belong with me, and then through that, you might be able to believe in my process and in my goodness and in my claims. And then I change who you are. So often, we don't deal well with doubt because we still operate under uh, a culture of if you don't believe, then you don't belong here. And I don't know if that's helpful to doubt because I don't think doubt and faith are exclusive. <laughs> I think so often they go hand in hand. Jesus, in the middle of John's doubt, draws him in. He drew in the one that doubted, and he said, hey, I still care for you. Let me show you. Like any good father would do with their kid, you know? If my dad, if my, uh, excuse me, kid came to me and said, Dad, I, I don't think you're a good dad, which would never happen because I'm a really good dad. <laughs> I wouldn't yell at her. I wouldn't push her away. I'd give her a hug and I'd tell her I love her. Like all good parents would do. John says, I'm doubting the nature of who you are. And Jesus says, don't do that. Let me tell you how much I love you. Look at what we've done. Look at what I've done. But it doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, this is what I've done. He doesn't draw John in. He also puts in perspective of what he's going to do. Keep reading. Yet the one who's the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and forceful people have laid hold of it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John appeared. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. The one whose ears better listen. So what he does is he breaks down kind of what John's doubts are. He says, hey, let's look at what I've done. And, 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 and you're still great in my eyes, don't doubt that. And then he says, but this is a process that's going somewhere. So the text that you read here without getting too into the weeds about it, yet the one who's the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John is. When he just said John was the greatest of all people born of women, what he, what he means there is that the culmination of the story of God is going to continue on until Jesus comes back. But this was the culmination of a time and place and a period through which God interacted with his people. He's saying now is going to be different. The kingdom of God is here, and believers from this point forward will operate under the ideal that God is with them and the Spirit will indwell them. And any believer post-John is greater than John because he has the Spirit living in him. If you look at back at how he defined greatness when he talks about John is the greatest of all, he defines greatness by its proximity towards Jesus himself. Jesus says, do you know why John's the greatest? Because he's the closest to me. And he's going to say, do you know why the ones that come after John are greater? Because they're going to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the plan of redemption of God that started in Genesis 3, that will end in Revelation 21, that will bring people to see the goodness and beauty of Jesus like we never have before. What he's doing is saying that I, it's not just that I've done work, but I'm in the middle of doing. We're in process together and it's not done yet, which is important to know when we doubt. That the God isn't silent, God hasn't quit. That God didn't forget about you and he didn't forget about me but he brings into the conversation the perspective of what God is doing in the world around us. Our doubts don't just challenge our past. They get us excited, hopefully, for our future. And so he tells John, 
but those who come after you are going to be great too. The kingdom's going to suffer violence, meaning it's going to get harder. But, 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 I tell you when it does, if you're willing, listen to know that I am coming back. The word Elijah there, the Jews thought that Elijah was going to go before Jesus. Jesus is saying it's really John. He's coming in the same weight and power as Elijah. So what Jesus does in the middle of John's doubts is he says, look what I've done and look what I'm doing. Just beautiful, graceful way to handle it when people say, I don't think you are who you really are. And I think that's what Jesus does for us. In our doubts, God draws near and invites us to look at what he's done and what he's doing. I think it's a picture for how, as the church, we can handle doubt in our midst with beauty and with grace and with love and with patience. In his book, Doubting Towards Faith, Bobby Conway writes, and he says, we can doubt towards God or we can doubt away from him. If you're struggling with doubt, I encourage you to doubt towards God. I think as, as a church, what I'd like to be is a place <laughs> that accepts doubt and then pushes people towards Jesus in it by reminding them that God still loves them, by reminding them of all that God has done, and by reminding them that God's not done yet. It's a graceful way to handle people that say, is Jesus really good? Last week, a friend of mine reached out. I have two stories about two friends, and they said... Uh, I'm having a hard time with church. This person was raised in a church, worked in churches. He said, I'm having a hard time with church. And I said, okay, I've been there. And, and they said, specifically, I'm having a hard time with the Bible. I just, I just don't know if the Bible is true anymore. If it's 100% accurate anymore, I'm having a hard time with my faith in the Bible. And what I didn't do is say, well, then you should read more. Or, well, then you should trust God more. What I did was say, well, is Jesus still good? Because their faith revolves around Jesus. That's what the Bible revolves around too. It's this beautiful picture of our job as followers of Jesus when people doubt to point people back to Jesus. And so we get to sit down and we get to say, let me draw you in instead of push you away. Let me talk about what Jesus has done in your life. And let me tell you, he's not done yet. And so for us, as followers of Jesus, that's what we're called to do. If you're doubting, then I'd encourage you to draw into somebody. This person reached out. I hadn't talked to him in a long time, and I applaud them for that. said, I'm doubting, and I know I need to go to somebody that I can trust. So if you have places of doubt, I would, instead of do what we're accustomed to do, which is run away, I'd run towards God. Because, you know what? God can handle your doubt, I promise. People might not be able to, but God can. And so in the middle of that, we either run towards if we're doubting or maybe we're in a place where we know people who are and we can draw them in like Jesus did John. And then like the book quotes, I would, I would encourage people to lean in to doubting towards Jesus by simply remembering what he's done in our lives and in our world and that he's not done yet. It's this beautiful way to deal with doubt, to lean in towards Jesus in the middle of doubt. Leslie Newbegin says it like this, our confidence comes not in the competence of our knowing, but in the faithfulness and reliability of the one who is known. It's a beautiful way to see doubt. Because John's going to stay in prison, and John's going to die in prison. <laughs> but in the middle of that, Jesus says, when you doubt, look at who I am. Look at what I've done, and look at what I am going to do. There's a podcast called The Liturgist Podcast. And in the first couple episodes, it interviews a couple of people. One is a Christian music artist, and one is a dude named Science Mike. And his story is given in two parts. It's long, but it's worth it. 
He just wrote a book called Finding God in the Waves a couple years ago. And he had a hard time with God for a little while. Born in the church, raised in the church, said, I was a deacon in my church and I realized I don't think I believe this anymore. I couldn't tell my family. I baptized my kids, you know? He said, I doubt it. And it took him a couple years, but it's a beautiful story about how he got to the other side and he realized that Jesus is still good and Jesus is still beautiful, even if he didn't have all the answers to all his questions. I have a, a guy, kind of a good friend, who started at CBC, man, probably four or five years ago. And I remember it because he said, hey, let's go get coffee. And I didn't know him very well then. And I sat down with him and he looked at me and he said, hey, I want to join your church. I want to go to your church, but I'm not sure I believe any of this anymore. He used to be a missionary. And I said, okay. And he said, do I have a place there? I said, absolutely, you do. Let's doubt towards Jesus. And he came here and his family came here and they recently moved, but been around for four or five years as we doubted towards Jesus together. As we remind ourselves what he's doing and what he's done. And now I can point to things in his family, but look what God did in your family over the last five years. He's good, even if you doubt. Because doubting is an exclusive. Doubting is, is not something that some of us go through. It's something that all of us go through, even if you're Jesus' cousin, <laughs> you know? The question is, how will we respond? And what does it do for you? Might we be a church and a people that accept doubts and push people towards Jesus in it. So let me end with two quotes from the guys that we started with this morning. So Calvin said this, for unbelief is so deeply rooted in our hearts and we're so inclined to it that not without hard struggling, not without hard struggle is each able to persuade himself of what all confess with the mouth, namely that God is faithful after he said he doubted. And the same one that said, I never doubt, it's time for him to doubt him. When Spurgeon said that, he came back and said, I thank God for every storm that wrecked me upon the rock of Christ. What if we were a church that doubted together, <laughs> that leaned in together, and that when we doubted, we said, let's look at what God has done, and let's look at what God is doing, because you are loved. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that you're big enough for our doubts. I'm thankful for people that can come alongside us that can help us process those. I'm thankful for the evidences big and small that you are good. I'm thankful that you're not done working for the hope that comes with that. God, may we be a people that doubt well. Because living out of faith isn't easy. There's gonna be hardship, there's gonna be struggle. This text, this chunk of text is all about our hardness to follow Jesus in those moments when doubt pops up, might it not cultivate a misconfidence in God? Might it build us towards a greater belief in your goodness? So help us doubt well so that people might see, people might know, people might live out the goodness of God as they see the beauty of Jesus in our world. Praise in his name. Amen.